Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is David Phillips. David is an associate research professor of economics at the University of Notre Dame. David, welcome back to the show. Good to be back, Jen. Today, we're going to talk about your research on mental health outreach for people leaving jail. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Sure. So I work as research faculty with the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities, or LEO. And so we're a lab that focuses on anti-poverty interventions in the United States. So we partner with organizations around the country, whether that be a nonprofit organization, county government, so on, who's doing anti-poverty work. And that can be in a lot of different spaces. So some of that's criminal justice, some of it's other spaces. Like I do a lot of work in housing for, and homelessness, for instance. And we work with them to do evaluation type of work that's measuring the impact of, of their interventions. And so this particular project, I think sort of an interest in this topic for me grew out of a lot of those like individual small contacts with particular partners around the country and just sort of becoming convinced that, wow, mental health is just so intertwined with the criminal justice system, particularly at the local level, that it's something we need to think about more. So like, for me, a lot of these individual interactions with uh, particular people providing particular services or or visiting particular courts or jails, like it it really kind of hits you in the face that mental health is, is closely connected to the criminal justice system. So like for one project, I was working with folks doing public defense in Seattle, sitting at the Seattle Municipal Court with them. And you know, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't really entirely know what's going on when people are being arraigned in court. And the public defender leans over to me and is like, oh, yeah, so here's what's going on. It's like, there's this woman who's clearly both chronically homeless and has mental illness. And, you know, she's being arraigned right now because she became convinced incorrectly that, you know, bedbugs were in her clothes. She threw them in a portable toilet and lit them on fire and it destroyed the porta potty. And so she's being arraigned for destruction of property and arson. And it's just like, okay, you know, like here, here's a person who has like incredible challenges in the world and she's now caught up in the criminal justice system because of that. And it's just, and you sort of sit there and you watch sort of misdemeanor court go and you just see this happening over and over and over again. And people, it's like the reason that you are connected with this seems like it's because of, of your, your mental illness rather than something else. And so I think those are just anecdotes, right? That's not evidence, but it's, you know, it sort of hits you when you see it in person. And then I think the, the opportunity to learn something about that then came up with our friends in, in Johnson County, Kansas, in suburban Kansas City, where Bill Evans and Mary Kate Patistich and I, two of my colleagues, got connected with folks in Johnson County who were doing some practical work there. It was like, okay, here's some folks who are doing some innovative work around how you might treat mental illness in the criminal justice system a little bit differently and, and what that might actually look like. And so I think for me, is a combination of both sort of seeing the individual level effects of this and seeing it happen and show up in lots of different situations of running into it and then seeing, okay, here's an opportunity to maybe learn something about how we can do better. Your paper is titled Reducing Rearrests Through Light Touch Mental Health Outreach. It's co-authored, as you mentioned, with Mary-Kate Batistich and Bill Evans. And you frame the study as being relevant to what you call a mental health crisis in corrections. So what do we know about the share of people in the criminal justice system with mental illness? It's shockingly high. So that sort of anecdote that I mentioned is is actually a really common thing. So in in Johnson County, where we're going to be working in Kansas, about a quarter of the people who take a screen for severe mental illness are going to screen positive for having a severe mental illness. And that's not unusual. So it turns out that 
in the world as we've structured it now, like some of the largest mental health providers in the country are actually local jails. So people like to kick around the idea that Cook County Jail is actually most of the time the country's largest mental health institution. And so it's both a large fraction of people coming to contact, particularly with local jails, and also in terms of fraction of sort of mental health services in the United States, actually a shockingly large percentage of them are provided by local jails, correctional facilities. And you mentioned some trends that appear to be driving this crisis that you describe. Tell us a little bit about those trends. You know, we try to pick out three things for sorting out, like how do we end up in a situation where our default option in some ways for a lot of folks with severe mental illness is that they would go to jail. And and we sort of think there's three things going on. One is that there has been a documented increase in just mental health issues and mental illness overall. So even pre-pandemic, obviously there's been a lot going on with the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, if you look at rates of severe mental illness and a couple of decades before the pandemic, they were increasing over that time period. So you have that going on where mental health issues maybe are becoming increasingly important in society. You also have at the same time mass incarceration happening, right? Where you've got, you know, peaking a few years ago, but still quite high now, you know, somewhere around a million and a half people in correctional facilities. And so that's happening, that increase in the number of people that we're locking up in criminal justice facilities is happening at the same time that fewer people are institutionalized in mental health hospitals. So, right, if you go back to like the 1950s, something like there's something like one bed for every 300 people in the United States in a mental health institution. There were a lot of people in mental health institutions, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Now, instead of one out of 300, that's like one out of 4,300. Now that last trend might, that's not necessarily a bad thing overall, right? It's, I don't know that we want to necessarily go back to the days of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and like, like there were real issues with mental health institutions uh, in, you know, the forties and fifties. Right. And so, but you have this sort of combination of trends where that used to be how we as a society worked with people who had severe mental illness. And we said that wasn't acceptable and it kind of went away. And we maybe have not like taken up that slack with something else as well as we could. And so in response, like what happens when people fall through the cracks, they end up in jail. And so we have this situation where that's what we were doing with a lot of people as we were putting them in, in jail and prison. And so that's what's been happening with a lot of people with, with mental illness. Yeah. So this all means, as you said, that jails and prisons are primary places where people might need and receive mental health care. So what types of programs are typically in place in jails and prisons to treat inmates with mental illness? My experience of this is that there isn't a typical response that is really widely varying. Through my work with Leo, being uh, having partners across the country, I've been in jails where what it meant for somebody with a severe mental illness in jail, what it meant for them is that they were frequently in a cell by themselves, you know, literally in a metal cage with limited access to mental health professionals and medication. I've had, you know, like people who work within the criminal justice system intentionally, you know, take us on the tour on that side so that they know, like, this is how it works. And, and this is really problematic. And I've also been in other places where, you know, the, in, especially in recent years, where people with mental illnesses who are coming through the courts are being diverted to a totally different type of court, that it's not your sort of traditional adversarial misdemeanor court. And it's instead in some sort of community court or mental health court that looks very, very different. Actually, the, folk, the person I mentioned before in Seattle, like if she came through court now in Seattle, she would end up in a very different situation than what she is right now. And so there's like, so that, that range is like incredibly wide. And then most places I think are somewhere close to where Johnson County is, which is somewhere in the middle where lots of people continue to be incarcerated who have major mental illnesses. And then the question is within 
jail, like what kind of services are they getting? And so that can vary too. So even within Johnson County over the past few years, like there's been variation in like how much staffing is there? Is there a psychiatrist who, who's actually readily available to meet with everybody who, who needs that kind of help? Or is that like a, well, we've got one person on call who shows up once every couple of months. Like they've gone through a process of that changing considerably. And I think a lot of places have, have sort of beefed up staffing on the side of providing help with mental illnesses. And there's also variation in terms of like what medicine can people can have access to. So some places they're going to be providing people medication when they find that somebody has a need that's okay, let's get you on psychotropic medication, whatever it is to try to help you while you're in jail and other places that doesn't happen. And other times it's just really hard to, because as you know, right, people cycle through jails really quickly, frequently. And so it's not always possible, right? If somebody comes in, they're gone a few days later for the jail to be able to assess who needs help and let's get them actually a prescription so that they can get the medication they need. So, right. That's hard to do quickly. And so the short answer is that it's like, my experience is that this is widely varying from place to place in terms of how people are addressed by the criminal justice system overall, and then what sort of services they receive once they enter. Yeah. And so I I grouped jails and prisons together in my question, but you're going to be talking about jails today. And it is, uh, I think this is all highly relevant to jails. People should keep that in mind. This is probably a little bit easier in prison since people are there for a little longer, but I'm sure still lots of variation at the prison level. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, Right, more intensive treatment programs are much, much, going to be much more common in state prison than they are in local jail. Uh, and just a quick note, the Johnson County you mentioned is Johnson County, Kansas, which we will talk more about in a moment. All right. So what do we know about the effectiveness of the various programs that jails and prisons are implementing? Do we know anything? I mean, given how, many, how important it is and how many people are affected, I think we know a lot less than we should, but we do, we do know some things. I think one thing that comes out of econ literature in particular, I think, is that just community provision of mental health services, right, that can make a big difference. And so you see effects on, on contact with the criminal justice system when there's just more mental health care around. So like Monica Deza and co-authors have a paper uh, just looking at prevalence of mental health care offices across counties and showing that when a county gets more mental health care offices, that, that crime rates go down. I think uh, Lisa Jacome's job market paper from a couple of years ago uh, showing that when Medicaid gets expanded to single adults, people are sort of on the margin of, of eligibility for Medicaid, that that can make a difference for their contact with the criminal justice system. And one way that that might matter is, is through giving people access to mental health care. One thing we know is that mental health care can be effective in, in reducing contact with the criminal justice system, that that's possible. And then the question is sort of how to like implement that and actually do that in practice um, from the sort of more criminology literature. There's a number of studies related to, for instance, mental health court that tries to provide an alternative to traditional criminal court for people with uh, severe mental illness. And there's a number of studies of, of those types of programs. I'd say that what we get out of that are, are typically evaluations of very intensive interventions that like let's change the entire criminal justice system. Like build a totally different court for these folks. That's like a really big change that may or may not be a good thing, right? But it is just really hard to do. It's a little bit different from what we're going to be looking at, which is much more light touch. I think in the literature where we see a lot more evaluations of sort of very light touch outreach type of interventions, right? There's, there's a number of papers around affecting failure to peer rates, I think, including some that have been featured on, on your show. So, right, like Farley Us's work on, on contacting folks by text message to try to remind them of their court dates, right? There's, there's a lot of evidence in that space now, I think, about 
how to use light touch interactions to get people in contact or to affect their their contact with the criminal justice system and make it more positive. But I think there's there's less that we know about sort of the intersection of these two things. So of looking at mental health, looking at um, sort of lighter touch type of interventions and the interaction between those two, that's kind of the space that we're going to live in. That's going to be where I think there's not much at this point. So why don't we know more than we do? Why is this such a difficult issue to study? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one is the combination of data that you need to take even a first pass at the question is pretty challenging, right? So, I mean, the first thing you really need to know is you need to know here is a person who's in contact with the criminal justice system who we have a reliable indication that they have a mental illness. And that's just hard to gather, right? A lot of administrative data sets don't have that due to the variation in how the criminal justice system like treats folks with mental illness or doesn't treat folks with mental illness. There's also, because of that, a lot of variation in how much we even just know about does this person have a you know major depression or not? Does this person have schizophrenia or not? And so I think what the first thing you need is you need some jurisdiction that's screening people for mental illness in a systematic way, that's trying to take some of the subjectivity out of it, that's trying to deal with all of the very hard shades of gray between you know the categories of mentally ill and not mentally ill, right? That it's like there's there's a lot in between there. And so you need someone who's doing that in a systematic way and really recording that. So identifying folks with mental illness is hard. And then, right, then that data has to be linked to some measure of, okay, here's an intervention that the person is receiving, and it needs to be linked to some measure of recidivism. And those are maybe more typically measured, but then you have to actually have those connected to the information on mental illness. So I think that the data requirements, I think, are pretty high, and that's probably the biggest barrier. Um, the second barrier I'd point out is that I do think that sorting out identification, trying to measure the causal effect of these programs can be quite difficult. They're typically trying to target people specifically because they have lots of challenges, right? So they're targeting people who have been screened for severe mental illness. And so we're going to send them to mental health court or something like that. And you might imagine that somebody who has all of this stuff going on is going to be different in terms of their recidivism outcomes, both in terms of just sort of overall risk of recidivism and also in terms of what direction that might be going future on later on in their life, because we're looking at a person at the very moment in time where it's like, okay, you're in a crisis moment right now. And it might be the case that, for instance, your risk reverts back to the mean or something like this. Yeah. So just comparing people who are going through the mental health court with people who aren't isn't going to tell you the effect of the mental health court because they're different people, right? As you said, there might be this brief crisis moment where they would have recovered anyway without the intervention. So just looking at like an event study or like a time series or something of an individual won't tell you. And even like comparing a jail with certain programs to a jail without might not be all that informative because the jails could be so different on other dimensions. And so it's really tough to find a good comparison group here. But you guys figure it out. So let's move in that direction. So in your paper, you consider the effects of an outreach program in Johnson County, Kansas. So tell us a bit about Johnson County. Sure. So yeah, Johnson County, Kansas is a county in Kansas. It's in the Kansas City metro area. And so I think it's useful to think of, I think most people are maybe less familiar with Kansas City than they are with some of the larger cities, Chicago or New York, Los Angeles. Kansas City metro area, in a lot of ways, on a lot of dimensions, is kind of a microcosm for the United States. So it has a median income very similar to U.S. median income, a similar poverty rate, similar sort of age distribution. It's a little bit less racially diverse than the typical ones. So that's one thing to, to keep in mind. 
but on a lot of dimensions, it, it looks kind of like a microcosm of the United States. And it's kind of in this in-between range between, you know, being a, a good-sized metropolitan area, but not so big to be fundamentally different from a lot of places that are smaller. Johnson County itself, the more affluent part of that metropolitan area. And so it's going to have higher income. It has a higher fraction of folks there who are white and so on. If people want an analogy, I I reference lots of things to Chicago myself. Like this, you know, if you think sort of north side of Chicago, if that's a better reference for some folks, it's it, that's sort of the role that Johnson County plays in that metro area. Like a lot of metro areas, there's a lot of sorting by income and race and so on. And, and Johnson County is pretty affluent portion of a pretty like standard metro area. Okay. And in 2016, Johnson County began using a brief jail mental health screen. Uh, that was the official name, I gather, to assess inmates' mental illness. So what types of questions does it ask and when was it administered? Yeah. So this is a screen that was developed by sociologist Henry Stedman and a big team led by him. And the goal of it is to really quickly screen for severe mental illness, right? So the the place where it's administered is that central booking. So when someone comes into Johnson County Jail, they've just been arrested by the police, they're dropped off, they're being booked, right? They haven't been arraigned for anything yet. They're they're just being dropped off in jail and they're doing their basic intake of basic information for folks. What they did is they inserted this eight question screen into that very rapid high volume process. And so it has to be really quick to be practical. And so it's really quick questions there's an initial set of questions of the, you know, it's the first, I think, six of the eight that are trying to get at symptoms of major mental illness. So think severe depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, and it's trying to get at those really quickly. And then there's a couple of questions at the end that just ask about previous contact with mental health care. So whether somebody is currently on medication for a mental health issue and whether they've been hospitalized before. And so, right, it's it's sort of really rapid. They ask uh, these eight questions and you get a really quick measure. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to give you a quick sense of, okay, does this person have a major mental illness or not? They started doing this after not having done that for a long time, right? A lot of jails don't have a good sense of like, okay, they have some subjective sense or some sense from staff of trying to identify people who have mental illness issues, either because uh, they want to treat them differently or because they're, they're concerned about negative events like suicide attempts. In November 2016, Johnson County started doing this more systematic thing, saying, okay, we're going to ask these eight questions to every single person who comes through booking. Okay. And then in 2017, so about a year later, Johnson County started a new outreach program for people with severe mental illness who are released from jail. So how did this program work? Yeah. So they had this foundation of having already done the screening. And so that was, that was fundamental because right, if you don't have the screening, then you don't know who is at risk, Right. But yeah, then like you said, a few months later, having already done the screen for a little while, they said, okay, we could use this information for something. And they just they started with sort of the simplest thing that, that could be done, which is just to try to contact people, say, okay, people are cycling through local jail really quickly. This is a moment in time where we come into contact with them. We know that they have a need for mental health care and we have contact information for them. So let's, as they're exiting, try to connect them with services. And so that's what the folks at Johnson County did. This is a partnership between Johnson County Jail and between people working in mental health care, working for the county. And so what they do is basically just try to connect people with mental health care services when they exit. That's usually one of two things. The county has a publicly funded uh, mental health care center, a physical place that people can go for mental health care. And so one big goal of it is just to connect people with an appointment there or get them to walk in because it has a walk-in option as well to, to show up 
that place and get connected with a mental health care provider. The other thing that they do is sometimes they get in contact with folks and they find out, oh, you've, you have a history of getting care for your mental illness. Let's connect you with your previous provider so that you can continue that relationship and let's do what we can to facilitate that being picked up again. And so, yeah, it's, it's usually one of the two, either something on the private side that you're getting reconnected to or getting connected to new care that's funded by the county. And how did those outreach workers actually contact people? Was the contact information pretty good? Yeah, they work really hard. I've, I've got a chance to meet these folks. And yeah, they basically work really hard to get in touch with folks, but working off relatively limited contact information. So a lot of it is, is really just manning the phones. It's just calling folks more than once. They, so they have a plan that they call everybody three times. And so they're going to call them, they're going to call them again, they're going to call them another time after that to make sure, okay, can I get in touch with this person? And then do the connecting to services we talked about. That's most of it for most people. They also use the screen to identify some folks who have particularly severe mental illness or people that they have a past history with that they think might have particularly severe mental illness. And for those folks, they also might attempt an in-person follow-up. So most of the time it's three phone calls, but then occasionally it's, okay, we're going to drive, we're going to knock on the door and, and see if we can get someone to open up the door. And finally, in order to refer people to mental health care, there, of course, need to be providers with availability for new patients. So what was mental health care availability like in Johnson County during this period? Yeah, so in Johnson County, there's better provision of mental health care than in an average county in the United States. If you go to like the county business patterns data that in the days at all paper I mentioned before, and you just look at like number of mental health care offices, Johnson County has about 50% more mental health care offices per person than the U.S. average. And so they do have somewhat more extensive mental health care. And that's important, right? It's the type of intervention we're talking about. Picking up the phone and calling somebody presumably is going to be totally ineffective in a place that doesn't have mental health care resources available. So this, this is complementary to some existing resources being out there. If those resources weren't, weren't out there, then this intervention is probably a bad fit. That said, the Kansas City metro area, again, is, is pretty similar to average. But Johnson County is, it does have better mental health care in terms of at least just raw numbers than most places. All right. So in order to measure the causal effect here, you need something akin to randomization to measure the effect of this outreach program. And it turns out that the way the program was implemented gives you a useful natural experiment that divides people into similar treatment and comparison groups, which is exactly what you need. So who was treated by this outreach program and who was not? Yeah. So it turned out that the way that they initially started rolling out this outreach in, in Johnson County was based off of where people lived. So it's, well, really where people lived and presence of, of mental illness. So they, right, they did the screen that was mentioned before. And among the group of people that screened positive for having severe mental illness, they didn't reach out to everybody. They had staff limitations, so on, but, you know, uh, limited resources. So what they decided to do is they reached out to people who were residents of Johnson County. They didn't do outreach with people who were not residents of Johnson County. That turns out to be important because a lot of people end up in Johnson County Jail who are not Johnson County residents. This is true in a lot of metro areas, right? You get sort of the affluent county in, in the metro area. It's not unusual to have a large number of people who are in their jail who are residents of the urban core or other parts of the metro area. And that's because they committed a crime in that county? That's correct, yeah. So you have people who live in, say, Jackson County, Missouri, which is the Missouri side of Kansas City, who end up in jail in Johnson County, Kansas because they were arrested on a charge that, that located in Johnson County. And so, yeah, then what you have is you have a group of people who were all arrested by the same police departments, booked into the same jail, 
and screened with the same tool for identifying mental illness, all screened positive on that. But some of them are going to be getting outreach and connection to mental health services because they're residents of Johnson County. And then you have other people who are going to be residents of, of a couple of nearby counties that are other parts of the metro area. They're going to have all of those other things be true, but it's not going to be true that they're going to get connected to services and have this type of outreach. And so that's the comparison that we're going to make. We're going to consider Johnson County residents, our treatment group here, and, a, and residents of, of two other neighboring counties as the control group that we can compare to. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about that. How exactly do you use this natural experiment to measure the causal effects of the mental health outreach program? We're going to do this as a difference in differences design. So we're going to look at changes over time. So you can imagine following these residents of Johnson County, Kansas, and see what their recidivism rates looked like before outreach started. So you go back into 2016 and you say, okay, how likely were these folks who were being screened for mental illness, screened as positive for mental illness, but weren't yet receiving services? Okay, how many of them recidivated? How many of them returned back to jail? And then we're going to follow those folks over time and see, okay, how did that change over time? Did it fall when we started, when Johnson County started doing outreach to them? And then we're going to compare. We know that other things could be going on over time, right? Recidivism rates change with the seasons of the year and, and everything else. So what we're going to do is we're going to benchmark those changes in time for Johnson County residents against people who reside in other counties, but were booked into Johnson County Jail. So we're going to follow those folks as well. We're going to see how they changed over time. And that gives us a sense of just, okay, how was the world changing over time? How was policy in Johnson County changing over time and so on? And use that as a benchmark and say, okay, the difference between those two differences the difference in trends between Johnson County residents and, and non-residents, that's how we're going to identify the effects of this outreach. And you also do something with neighborhoods that are just on the border of these counties, right? That is right. So we do a couple of other things, right? The, so the comparison across two counties is, is not perfect, right? In my ideal world, right, we would, it would be wonderful to run this as a randomized control trial, 100% confidence is strong word with a really high degree of confidence, right? Okay, this is uh, due to the program. There's not anything else going on. If you're going to compare across counties, right, you're going to have some other things going on, right? The residents of Johnson County, for instance, are much more likely to be white than the residents of the neighboring counties. That's important when we're talking about the criminal justice system. So we do some other things to try to narrow down a bit to make sure that we're not picking up other ways these two different groups of people are changing over time. Yeah, one of those is what, is what you said, which is we look at, at zip codes that are on the border of the two counties. And so you get, you know, for instance, right on the, the eastern border of Johnson County, where it, it borders Missouri, and you get uh, folks who live on either side of that line. They look much more similar to each other than sort of residents of Johnson County and the Kansas City metro area do to each other in general. And so you can get a little bit cleaner comparison there. It gets a little bit noisy because there's, there's fewer people in that comparison. So things. Uh, there's a little bit less precision in, in the estimates we're going to get out, but we get similar results. And that's encouraging to us that if you sort of narrow down a little bit to folks who are living in a little bit more similar neighborhoods, uh, that you get similar results. Okay. So what data do you use for all of this? Yeah. So we're going to heavily rely on data from the jails themselves. So Johnson County itself is going to do most of the work with its bookings data. So Right, we've got that centralized booking process that's going to give us a few things, right? Everybody's going to use the mental health screen during that process. And so we'll, we'll see there whether somebody screens positive or not for mental health issue. That's going to be linked already to information on whether that person returns to jail for another booking on another charge in the future, which is going to give us an outcome measure. We're going to do a little bit more work because, again, we're making this comparison across counties and a lot of these folks reside 
in another county, uh, in particular our comparison group resides in another county. And so we want to make sure that we have recidivism measures from those counties as well. So we're going to pull in data from the two neighboring counties as well in our recidivism measures so that we're measuring not just do you end up getting rebooked in Johnson County, but do you get rebooked in any of this sort of three county area? Just as a side question, how difficult was it to get the data from all three counties? When I first read this, it was like, that feels very lucky that everyone cooperated and gave you their data. This paper would have existed a couple of years earlier. If you notice right now, <laughs> all, all, 2016 and 2017 aren't very recent, right? So uh, yeah, this, this paper would have existed a couple of years ago if we had been content with one county, but we really thought it was important to get three counties. Now I will say then how we ended up getting it is less about us. We did some, you know, shoe leather and hard work and there are, I should give lots of acknowledgement to the wonderful team at Leo that did a lot of the hard work of, of continuing to push the ball along for many different people who did that, but especially our, our partners at Johnson County were really helpful. They wanted this evaluation to happen. They wanted to help us do something that was as good as possible. And so they were very helpful in connecting us to folks. And there were wonderful people in Jackson and Wyandotte counties that, that responded and were helpful and, and thinking about problem solving a way to actually make it work. And so it was, it was a lot of people who had decided, yeah, they wanted to say yes to this thing. And helping make it work rather than trying to find ways not to do it. So there's, there's a huge team of, team of people that made it possible. You had to make three counties fit together, which is hard. <laughs> yeah, it's the big challenge of our decentralized criminal justice system. And especially a metro area that covers two states. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Oh my gosh. Okay, so tell us about the people in your sample. And in particular, how often do they screen positive for severe mental illness? About a quarter of the people who are coming through Johnson County Jail are going to screen positive for mental illness. And so it's going to be a significant number. It's not going to be most people, but it's going to be a significant number who are screening positive for this type of severe mental illness. And then that group is going to end up being a group of people that has some characteristics that tag them as being particularly vulnerable. So they're very unlikely to be employed or married and so on. Some other ways that they're going to be different from a general population of folks coming through Johnson County Jail, they're actually going to be more likely to be female. They're going to be more likely to be white, but they're going to have similar arrest histories to other folks who are coming through. And what are the outcome measures you're focused on? So the main thing that we're going to do is going to look at jail bookings, which is going to be a combination of things, right? It's really sort of contact with the criminal justice system. That may mean that the person committed another crime. It may mean they just got picked up by the police. It's really, you know, sort of of the combination of those things. We can't tell guilt from it, uh, but we can tell that here's a person who ended up back in jail. And you, you also have data on whether people actually connected with mental health care. Is that right? We have some information about what their immediate contact was. So we don't have uh, information on the full extent of what mental health care someone received. That would be wonderful. And it's something that we pursued, but we're unable to get. But what we do have is what happened as the immediate outcome of that call. So when people, the folks in Johnson County try three times to give a call to somebody, they log, okay, how did this thing end? And we have some information of, okay, Here's how many they tried to contact. Here's whether they got in contact. And then if they got in contact and then they connected somebody with mental health resource, here's what it was. And so we have some sense of that immediate services received, but less about sort of the full range of mental health care that someone accessed. Okay. And so the underlying assumption of your difference in differences strategy is that the trends in Johnson County would have continued as in the other nearby counties, if not for this new program. And this is, of course, impossible to test directly, but the evidence we usually look for is what we call parallel trends before the intervention. So what do the trends in rebooking, in particular, look like in Johnson County and your comparison counties before the outreach program began? They look quite similar. So we have we have sort of two different ways we can look at that. One is we can look at these few months at the end of 2016, very beginning of 2017, when they had started doing the mental health screen, but before they 
we're providing services and we can look and see how things were trending then. And there we see, uh, yeah, both Johnson County residents and non-residents trending together. The other thing we can do is that's only a few months. And so sometimes it's nice in these sort of studies, right? To, as you know, to see a much longer period of time before. And so another thing we can do is before they started doing the mental health screen, we can still compare trends for Johnson County residents versus non-residents just among the entire population at the jail, not just those who have screened for mental illness. And then we can see similar trends over a much longer period of time for this broader group that includes people who would screen positive for mental illness, but also those who would screen negative. Okay, great. Yeah. So all that gives you more confidence that these other counties are giving you a good counterfactual for what would have happened without the program. All right. So let's talk about the results. So first you consider the effect of an outreach referral on the likelihood that people are actually contacted and connected with mental health care. So what do you find? Yes, we do find that they are successful in connecting some people with mental health care resources. And that's, I should say, by itself, something that's useful to know. It's not obvious that it would be possible by calling people up three times that that you could get a a non-negligible number of people and connected to mental health care, but they do. So they try to contact 95% of the people that they're supposed to try to contact. So the staff does a good job doing what what they're supposed to. They actually contact about half of them. Uh, And so about half of people just either never pick up the phone or they have bad contact info for whatever. And so there's, that is a real issue. And then of those about half that they actually contact, 27% of them overall out of the total people they first started trying to contact, 27% end up connected with a mental health resource, either their existing private practitioner or the county's resources. And that to me, it's interesting on both dimensions that like there's 73% of people that couldn't get in get connected. And so there's a bunch of people that that are getting missed by this. But even so, even from a relatively light intervention, they're getting about a quarter of people connected to services. Yeah, I agree. I had the same reaction that this result alone is really interesting and important, especially for a population that, you know, we'd worry is more transient, might not have cell phones, you know, that are always on and where you can reach somebody. It's kind of amazing that they were able to actually contact half and then get half of those connected. So super promising there. Okay. And then next you consider effects on recidivism or rebooking in particular. So what do you find? Yes, we do find that recidivism goes down. So it, and it goes down more in this Johnson County group than the folks who are residents of other counties. And so that we interpret that as the effect of the outreach. And so if, if you take that assumption, right, then what you're going to get is a result that recidivism within two months decreases by about eight percentage points. And then that eight percentage point decrease lasts out to about one year. So it's not sort of just delaying, okay, I would have been booked, you know, next month, but instead I'm getting booked six months later. So it looks like it, it sort of persists out at least to a year. And that's a pretty, pretty big effect, right? Eight percentage points. What does that mean? It turns out that recidivism rates are very high among this group. So about half of the people in our sample are going to return to jail within a year. Uh, 46% of them. And so knocking that down by eight percentage points is a, is a noticeable change in, in recidivism for this group of people. Right. And again, because this is just connecting them with mental health care, maybe some of these people then are fully engaged and get medication and go to weekly appointments, but maybe everybody just drops off next week. And so it seems like there's really something happening there where just connecting them is leading to real treatment if you're going to see effects of that size. I think that's right. Yeah. So it's like, in some ways we observe, there's this big causal chain and we observe the first link in that chain, which is, do you get connected with something right away? And then we observe something at the end, which is, do you return to jail? And there's a bunch of things going on in the middle that we wish we could see, but we can't. And it would, that's one place where I think, like talk about room for future research later on. I mean, I, I think someone who's able to observe all of those things happening would be really wonderful to know exactly what's going on in that in between. 
Okay. And then as a placebo test, you use the same empirical strategy to measure effects on people who did not screen positive for mental illness. So why do you do this? And what do you find? Yeah, so we do this. And part of that reason is, right, this isn't a randomized controlled trial, right? So we don't have perfect identification of causal effects in this context, right? There, there are differences between these counties. We already talked about sort of this, let's focus on the border strategy of dealing with that. But there's other ways you can think about dealing with that, right? If you're concerned that, say, Johnson County, Kansas, residents from there and residents from other parts of the metro area are going to have other changes over time that are different between the two places, or if you're concerned that there are other policy changes going on, right? Maybe you're concerned. It's like, okay, Johnson County was just doing a bunch of stuff for its own residents, but not for residents of these other places to try to reduce recidivism. And, and that's just what we're picking up. Then what you might want to look and say, okay, well, let's make sure that this is something specifically about folks who have been screened for severe mental illness. Let's make sure that that's where the effects are showing up. And so that's what we do. So this the sort of placebo test that you mentioned of doing the same empirical strategy, comparing trends of Johnson County versus not for people who have not screened positive for mental illness, it sort of gets at that. It's like, okay, we shouldn't see anything going on there if this is really driven by mental health outreach. And that's what we find. We don't find these sort of big effects on recidivism among the group of people who do not screen positive for mental illness. Okay. And then you consider whether the effects of this program vary across different groups, including by race and gender, as well as whether someone had received mental health treatment in the past and what types of symptoms they reported. So what do you find there? The biggest thing that we find is differences by past mental health treatment, which we think is interesting, right? So that recall that the screen identifies some people for severe mental illness because of symptoms. And in the first six questions of the screen and the last couple of questions of the screen are about past use of mental health care. And so we can look at sort of a group of people who have indications of symptoms, but no self-reported past mental health care. And the effects are really sort of concentrated among that group has really big decreases in, in recidivism. And we find that's really interesting. Like it's, you might imagine this type of, it's some sense like a low cost cast the net wide type of intervention. Let's screen everybody at the jail. And then let's try to do some kind of contact with everybody. You may pick up some folks in that type of intervention where the returns are really, really high because they've slipped through all of the cracks before. And it seems like that's that's part of what's going on. Like we're seeing these really big effects for people who haven't had mental health care in the past, despite the fact that they have really severe symptoms. And so what are the policy implications of these results? What should policymakers and practitioners take away from all this? I think there's a couple of things. I think one is that the first step toward treating mental illness differently in a local jail may have really large marginal benefits at relatively low marginal cost, at least to the county. Like you said before, we don't know the, the sort of cost of the healthcare that people are getting access to. But at least the, the county's like immediate outreach cost is really, really low. It's some staff time to, to phone bank. And that's having big effects on recidivism. And so given where they were starting from in a context where there was not a lot of psychiatric treatment going on in the jail, that first step could have a really big bang for the buck. And now they've changed some of what they do in jail now. So maybe the bang for the buck will be different now or different in another context where there's other care wrapping around. But I think it gives some indication that for communities that are thinking about, okay, we really need to take a first step, like that first step may have really high returns. I think a second thing that I would say is that it convinces me that this large group of people in the criminal justice system who have mental illness overlapping with their contact with the criminal justice system, that I, I want to think about interventions for them that are maybe different than what I think about somebody who's a Becker-style rational criminal actor who's like weighing costs and benefits. But there's going to be a big chunk of people who 
like the woman I started with at the beginning in Seattle, who it's like the reason for her ending up in court is not so much about an understanding of this environment and making rational choice about what's going on. It's, it's related to her mental illness. And so like, if we have a big chunk of people in that category, we want to think about interventions that are particularly targeted them. Uh, that's different than I might think of as somebody who like makes their living burglarizing homes or something like that. Right. Those are, those are different groups of people. We should think about different interventions for them. Right. So threatening the woman you saw in Seattle with more punishment is not going to do anything to her decision, <laughs> to, quote unquote, decision to engage in criminal behavior. And in some ways that's self-evident, but then it's like, then you say, okay, there's a large number of people in that situation. And here's an example of somebody intervening in a different way, having big effects. And I think it gives some like meat to the anecdote of saying like, okay, this might be a common occurrence rather than something that's rare. Mm-hmm. I think it's also really interesting and your study highlights that even in a place where mental health care was it seems fairly easily available. You have clinics there, like people can just walk in. It took this nudge, right? It took these outreach workers to let this extremely high risk group that needed that care know about it and help them access it. And so it just makes me think like even in a place where it feels like everything is, you know, going right <laughs> or like everything is sort of lined up in a way where this care is available people still aren't getting the care they need. And so you can only imagine in places where it's harder to access that this population kind of doesn't have a chance. Okay. So are there any other papers related to this topic that have come out since y'all first started working on this study? I've been excited to see a growing number of economists working on this. I think it's, it seems to me like it's rapidly expanding. Even like, sorry, I've been doing reading lots of job market papers since that time of year for those who don't no, we listen to the podcast the time of year where we hire economists and so yeah, like there's so there's lots of young economists. I think we're doing really cool stuff on this. There's a group of grad students from Texas who have this Sam Arnberg and Neller and Stripling. So they have this interesting paper looking at Medicaid eligibility on adult incarceration that they're working on, showing that giving Medicaid to, to kids affects their incarceration later on. And they argue one of the mechanisms is through availability of mental health care when people are kids. Malcolm Benchik, who's a, a postdoc at East Chicago, is a bunch of stuff around sort of behavioral health more broadly construed at the intersection of both like diversion programs for people who are being arrested for drug charges, but also thinking about how crime has the other sort of other direction of causality, the way that crime might affect people's mental health when crime happens in their neighborhood. There's an interesting paper by a group at Baylor that's trying to sort out what's going on in mental health court and trying to sort out one interesting thing they find is that like people are screened in mental health court and who actually does the screening matters for whether the person gets assigned to mental health court and whether what type of legal advice they end up getting from a public defender or private attorney. And so just the idea that like how you actually work out the mechanics of these interventions of working with folks who have mental illness who are in contact with the criminal justice system, that it's a complicated thing. <laughs> and so it's just, yeah, it's been exciting to me to see other people, I think, coming to a similar conclusion of like, yeah, we just need a lot more work in this area and to see it growing is, is really neat. Yeah. So speaking of which, what's the research frontier? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others will be thinking about in the years ahead? I think there's a lot left to do. I mean, I've I've had more conversations with local organizations who are doing cool things than I've been able to find like, okay, here's a situation where we can evaluate this thing. Like there's lots of different jurisdictions are doing these co-responder models where they send public health professionals alongside the police to respond to call like 911 calls that have mental illness attached to the reason for the call. And, and you see instances of lots of different places who are doing diversion of folks with mental 
health to mental health courts in lots of different ways. And so some of these models we have evidence on, some of them, the evidence needs to be a lot better. Some of them we have just like no evidence at all. And I mean, there's just, or just very little, no evidence is a strong word, very little evidence. And so I just think there's, there's a lot of innovation happening at the policy level in this space. And I think it's going to take some time for the research to catch up to it. And so just like filling out what we know about what of these are actually promising and which ones aren't, I think it's just hard to know at this moment. And we really need to know a lot more. So I, I, yeah, I hope that there are lots of others who will beat me to the punch of you know running RCTs of some of these things and stuff, because we just have so much more to learn. Yeah. Well, I will plug, I actually have students at Texas A&M who are working on a study on that co-responder model you mentioned. They have neat data. From Fantastic. El Paso. Yeah. Where they have these CIT units where they have a mental health professional go out with a police officer. And um, the results are kind of complicated, it turns out, <laughs> but super interesting. And yeah, I think this is a space where to me, it just seems like there's so much great work being done by graduate students in particular. Like they're able to, like it, a lot of this just takes so much time, right, to build relationships with practitioners and the grad students have more time than uh, than faculty <laughs> members do. <laughs> so it's really exciting to see. My guest today has been David Phillips from the University of Notre Dame. David, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. So all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.